And now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Carla Hall. Carla Hall is an editorial board member at the Los Angeles Times, where she writes about homelessness, reproductive rights, popular, cult popular culture, animal welfare, and human rights, among other topics. She previously reported for the LA Times' California section and the Washington Post's style section. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Carla Hall. Um, thank you, and I'm going to introduce the panelists. Hal Hirschfield is a behavioral psychologist at the UCLA Anderson School of Management, where he studies cognitive bias and how people imagine their future selves. He also contributes op-eds to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Jennifer Murchia is a historian of American political rhetoric at Texas A&M University and a contributing editor at Zocalo. She is also the author of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and currently at work on her next book titled Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. <laughs> She'll be talking about that later. Um, Anthony Pratt-Canis is a professor emeritus of, soci of social psychology at UC Santa Cruz and the co-author of Age of Propaganda, The Everyday Use and Abuse of Persuasion. He previously taught courses in advertising and consumer behavior at Carnegie Mellon University, and he is a magician. <laughs> so thank you for being here. So the theme of this panel is is contemporary propaganda damaging our attention spans, our relationships, our ability to ponder bigger questions? Um, or does it suffer, offer some benefits, like nudging us to eat healthier, or save the earth, or maybe even vote? So is it all those things? How? Uh, thanks. Thank you for moderating tonight, too. Um, so I mean, I think so much of this depends on how we define propaganda, right? And, Defined a certain way, we could say it's all bad. Defined more broadly, as you just did, I think we can argue that there are many uses where this can actually help people do the things that they say that they want to do. You know, where my research comes in at this is to say there's often this gap between how people want to live their lives or say that they want to live their mm -hmm. lives and the way that they actually do. I don't want to eat as much as I do, but I can't stop myself. I want to wake up earlier and exercise, <laughs> but I don't. Um, and so how do we get people to do those things? And I, mean, I think we will probably touch on some of these topics, but there are messages and framings that, that we can use and that marketers do use that do try to help people do these and things. And it's okay to believe that. So, so the, the definition, when I looked up propaganda, uh, sounds to me of the, def the definition of propaganda sounds really shady and skanky. Um, inf <laughs> information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular political cause or point of view. Well, that sounds awful. Um, but is it always that awful? It, it's not. Is it, Anthony? Well, I have a, a very specific definition of propaganda. First of all, it's defined in a lot of different ways. Right. And, can mean, just mean promoting a side or, or, or taking a more uh, nefarious definition. Mine is uh, a message that plays on your emotions and prejudices. It's typically short, like a soundbite, a photo, a vivid image, and it's designed to speak to your gut, get you have your arousal going, fear, guilt, some kind of negative emotion like that, and then it, it also can speak to your prejudices. Um, I don't like, it, it's against that kind of person, kind of people I don't like. If you think about it from a history standpoint, uh, how do you do propaganda? There was a great interview done by Bill Moyers of Fritz Hitler, who was the propaganda minister for Joseph Goebbels. And Fritz Hitler said his role was to simplify, make it agreeable and entertaining, and then repeat, repeat, repeat. That's the formula. Now the question is, can that ever be done for good? Well, obviously it can. Uh, you can raise fear about a tooth decay, and maybe that'll get somebody to go to the dentist. Probably will if you couple it with a doable response. Uh, 
And so it can be used in those kinds of ways. But the problem is, is when people feel like they've been manipulated, mm -hmm. it can come back to bite them. Right. Second of all, you're not getting a discussion of the issues. A democracy is founded on having deliberative persuasion, discussion, debate, negotiation, understanding the core issues that, that the country faces. And if I'm constantly appealing to your emotions one after another, that debate's not happening. And it also creates a situation where the next propagandist who can appeal to your emotions even better can mislead you again and undo everything that the previous propagandists had done. So, uh, Jen, you said that um, America's public sphere is broken because we communicate as propagandists and we don't know the rules of productive discussion and debate. So what are the rules and how, where do we learn them? Well, part of the problem is that we um, spend so much time in our own media bubbles and in our own private sphere that we failed to join organizations that used to teach us, and we've done this over generations, but um, that used to teach us democratic skills, um, democratic decision making. Democratic skills and democratic decision making. Those are skills that we have to learn. Um, I'm in a communication department, and there are communication departments around the country that have um, labs for civil discourse um, where students learn how to organize processes for fair, deliberative discussion. Right? So we can join organizations that teach this. The Kettering Foundation is a great one um, where they have the Civil Issues Forum, Civic Issues Forum, and they teach these skills of how to design a process that's fair to all sides, that allows people to feel like and to actually contribute to decision making, um, that allows people a fair amount of time to to talk and to reach consensus and decide how we should value um, what objects, you know, and how we should make decisions, what the decision rules are. You can't say that there's one perfect way, you know, of organizing any conversation because that's going to need to be decided on a case-by-case -case mm -hmm. basis. But we know what works, right? Um, and so what's happened is that we've failed to do the things that communication experts know we should do. Um, and that's because largely we are taught to communicate uh, as propagandists. Well, and, and they're the, the propagandists that, like you were talking about, who are powerful and run nations or have the ear of the people who run nations. And then they're just the rest of us who are on our next door, you know, um, <laughs> um, email thing. Um, all talking to each other and talking at each other, sure. um, and Facebook, and we're using propaganda, and we're terrible, I think I hear you saying, <laughs> at, at knowing how to really talk to each other. Well, part of it is that, is that we are terrible at it, but it's also, in some ways, not our fault. So the algorithms that control um, maybe not your next door app, but <laughs> <laughs> what you see on Facebook or what you see on Twitter, those algorithms are designed to promote the most emotive, most outrageous content, right? And the notifications that you get on your apps, those are designed to ping the dopamine receptors in your brain to get you addicted to having notifications. And so sometimes the apps withhold those notifications so that you'll go back over and over again looking for more positive feedback, right? Because you're addicted to it. So it trains you. It literally trains you to speak as a propagandist on social media, right? It, it will only show your content if you're outrageous. It will only show, it, uh, show you that other people have enjoyed your content if you go back enough times and say enough outrageous things, right? They call it the outrage industry for a reason. Um, it's designed not to facilitate democratic deliberation, um, but to keep you engaged. And I guess in some ways, um, my business, the media, um, is kind of plays with this too, hopefully not as as evilly as you're talking about it. But when we um, put a headline on something online, yeah. um, it, it's supposed to, and we get dinged on Google if we, if we say, um, you know, woman 
caught without her head in a bar, and then it turns out to be a story just about um, sanitation in bars. I mean, uh, we, we can't do that. Um, but we do look for something provocative that, has, that relates to what's going on in the story, and then we are rewarded on Google by being sure. moved up. And sensationalism is nothing new, right, from the media. Mm -hmm. But when you have a finite number of producers of sensational content, that's one thing. But we have an infinite, <laughs> right? Yeah. We have an infinite number of sensational content producers today, right? Every single one of us produces sensationalist content. Yeah. So I, I wanted to go back to the idea that um, <clears throat> sometimes propaganda, like in marketing, can be for good. Right. And um, I was thinking about um, uh, there's this story out about how the 10,000 steps, you know, we're all supposed to walk 10,000 mm -hmm. steps a day for our health. It turns out that was never scientifically backed. Right. Um, that was promoted by uh, a company that made pedometers. Um, right, right. And <laughs> they wanted you to use them to walk 10,000 steps. It turns out you actually only need to walk 4,400 steps. You shouldn't tell like, them that. That's oh, not, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, OK. So um, maybe that was, OK, they did it for to make more money or to get you to think, oh my god, I've got to get this pedometer. But maybe that not that good that they, that they the, the byproduct was that we all walked more steps. So I, I think this actually highlights two things. One is we have to ask what's the intentionality, or what's the intention behind the, uh, the, you know, the disbursement of information, right? So the statistic about there's the, the millions of plastic straws that are thrown away every yeah, day, right? Where did yeah. this come from? Eventually somebody figured out it was a fourth grade science project that <laughs> originally put out that number five or six years ago, you know? And so, there wasn't an intention there to be nefarious. It just happened to be that information spread. And I, you know, I don't know what the 10,000 steps came from exactly. So we have to ask, you know, is it, was it intentionally misleading or did it somehow get uh, misread over time? And then, then we sort of ask, well, if that's sort of moving people into the right direction health-wise, is that a problem? And you know, th this becomes a real sort of philosophical debate because we can ask, well, what do people want to do? And is there some sort of agency taken away when messaging is put out like this and it's against, you know, people now somehow feel like they're doing something that's against their free will or, or they don't even realize that they're doing this sort of behavior. And that, that opens up a whole sort of can of worms that's, that's hard to, to grapple with. Now, I think for the most part, a lot of messaging that may sort of err on the side of getting people to do something good, uh, when done right, allows people the decision power to sort of do this sort of thing or, or not. It's just that it nudges them essentially in the right direction, in the direction that they say they want to go in at least, right? So. I mean, can you think of an example of something where it's marketing, but it's also making us do the right thing? So, I mean, I think about <coughs> a lot of the... I think about a lot of the work in the behavioral economics or uh, social psychology space in the retirement world. Um, so some of this is messaging and some of this is structuring choices for people so that they end up doing something that can help them. So you look at 401k participation. Mm -hmm. uh, if you default someone into contributing to their account, they're much more likely to do so. That is, they have to make a decision to not contribute rather than to contribute. Or if you default them into automatically escalating their contributions year after year, that feature has been adding about $7 billion annually to American retirement accounts. That's amazing. So that's, you, you know, It worked remarkable. on me, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's actually a, a really good example. Um, but do you, I, I know, uh, Anthony, you feel that this is a message-dense environment. And, and in fact, I'm sure you all feel that way. I'm, we all feel that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thousands of commercials, <clears throat> things on the internet, um, junk mail. Um, how do we pick our way through that environment? Because all those senders of those messages are propagandists. Yeah, and that's the rub. Mm. Because it's impossible to think about each one of them. And that is the, the real issue that we face as citizens. So, uh, you know, one social psychologist tried to keep track 
of the number of persuasive messages he, he got in a day. And he gave up around 9.30. Because <laughs> he was already over top of his little clicker. Yeah, 9.30 in the morning. Uh, and, and so how do you think about each one of those? And um, that is one of the, the key um, reasons why propaganda can be effective. You can't think about them. And so then what you do is, we all do, we start to use heuristics, simple rules to decide, well, was that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that true or is that false? Well, it came from my political party, it must be good. It came from their political party, it must mm. be bad. Or it comes from an older white guy, or I just I that person, or I just the millennial. And you start to use those kind of simple heuristics. It agrees with me. It's something that I want to be true. And that is the rub. And the interesting side of it is, is we also have at our fingertips all the information we need to be able to sort out these issues. The problem is we don't have the time, and we also don't oftentimes have the skills to go through them. You know, I, I sit on Facebook and I, somebody will post something. Well, I'll Google it. And, you know, there's things like fact check that will tell you whether this statement was made or not. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there are tools like that, but there's not enough of them. And that's one of, that's one of the reasons why propaganda is so effective. And also, we get all this stuff, all this information. Has it made us, um, has it made our attention spans shorter and or are we just uh, we're just in an age where this is all we want to look at? Well, it certainly has uh, cut the um, amount of time given to a specific topic. So if you look back at the amount of time a, pre a typical presidential candidate would have had in 1968, on the evening news they would get two to three minutes where all they did was talk. Wow. Uh, by the 90s, late 90s, you're lucky to get about eight, seven or eight seconds of the candidate saying something and it's filled in. Now we just get tweets and uh, simple sound bites. And that has an effect. Uh, imagine if I, was to, if I was a political candidate and I wanted to convince you of uh, any kind of issue. I only have seven seconds to do it. How do I do that? And also, half of you have left. That I said something for seven seconds, half of you leave. And another half come in. I now have another seven seconds. That's impossible for me to outline the trade-offs that you would have on health care or any of these sorts of, or why we should go to war or why we shouldn't go to war. Um, so, and that, yeah. I mean, that is the, the obstacle we face. Um, and yet it also feels to me like, uh, um, you know, CNN has already started these town halls with the presidential right. candidates, the Democratic candidates. So I feel like I see them constantly. And then CNN, again, um, is covering all their rallies and stuff, or the rallies of the right. front runners. Um, so I feel like I'm seeing them a lot and hearing them a lot, although I'm not sure this, this early on that really is making much of an impact on me, you know, because there's just, even though it's longer, there's still too much of it, kind of. You know, it's almost like it's not organized, it seems like. But, but um, Jen, let me ask you about um, your books. Um, so you wrote one book on Obama, and now you're at work on, um, your next book about, is about Trump. You can't think of two presidents, politics aside, who are different people. I and mean, Obama was the meticulous, measured thinker, or at least this is what I think he was. Um, you know, there's the famous story about him finishing dinner in the Oval Office, and then he goes, or in the White House, and then he goes to his office for five hours with seven peanuts and continues to work through briefing papers. And whereas Trump um, finishes dinner and then retreats to his bedroom and watches Fox News um, and, and eats French fries. Um, so, and yet, I think, both of these men are masterful politicians. They got people to elect them president. I mean, how would you compare them as propagandists or persuaders? 
Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that the Obama and the seven almonds thing was actually a joke <laughs> that circulated and got amplified. And yeah, but it was a good turned story. Turned into truth. And so yeah, I want to no, use it as it, propaganda. No, you're right, because so. it, it, it speaks to like this essential um, thing about him, right? Which, which is that he is very measured and controlled. And so, of course, he would have just seven almonds um, <laughs> or whatever it was. But I think it was actually a joke. Um, I don't want to spread misinformation uh, or disinformation. Uh, but yeah, so two very different speakers in terms of style, right? So um, Obama... Um, always is focused on the facts, the policy. He uses um, what we can think of as soaring or high style, transcendent rhetoric, so what we all have in common rather than what divides us, mm. um, right? Very optimistic and hopeful, yes we can, that kind of thing. Um, he ran, as, as all presidents do, as the nation's hero um, in 2008 and convince the nation that, and, and I mean, you know, a good percentage of the nation, not just the Democratic Party, that he was the right hero for the moment. Um, and so that's what that book that I wrote about Obama is. It's an edited collection of people um, explaining uh, why they thought that Obama was going to be the right hero to save America, right, during this national crisis. Um, Trump also ran as a hero. You might not think that. <laughs> um, so my book is about uh, Trump running as a demagogue. And if you look up the word demagogue in the Oxford English Dictionary, the first definition says um, a political leader who defends the people's interest against the other parts of the state, a hero. The second definition says a political leader who uses polarizing propaganda for their own gain <laughs> against the other parts of the state, a villain. Right. So Trump ran as a heroic figure, just like Obama did. Um, some people who followed him, his fans, um, see him still that way. They see him um, defending their interests against the corrupt other parts of the state. Uh, other people don't see him that way. They don't see him as the heroic figure. They see him as the villainous figure. Uh, either way, Trump is this main character, right? Um, and has been occupying all this space in our heads since 2015. And so now, um, with the new um, uh, next campaign, a next election coming up, how do we navigate our way through all this? I mean, what advice would you give us to be smart, I don't know, consumers? <laughs> of propaganda or of Trump's uh, rhetoric? Smart. <laughs> Well, how would you, um, what advice would you give us to be um, smart consumers of all the propaganda about all the Democratic contenders yeah. and about Trump, and then how do we take that to a dinner table conversation <laughs> and yeah. manage to convince yeah. people? Yeah, it, it's, it's hard because the propaganda is so good at this point, um, right? So it's all designed to have us... Um, as he said, to, to not reflect critically on what we're spreading, the information that we're sharing and amplifying. Um, it's designed to push the buttons to make us outraged and then react. Um, and it's very difficult to have the presence of mind to calmly reflect on the information that you're being provided and the information that you're sharing. I'm a communication expert who studies rhetoric and propaganda. And I have to check myself. And sometimes I delete tweets, right? Because I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, I shouldn't have said that, uh, right? And I'm very careful about how I communicate. And you know, if I share a video and, I, and it, it had made me cry or it made me laugh, I'll let people know, right? I'll be like, this is hilarious. Watch it if you want to laugh. <laughs> this is you know, sad. Watch this if you need to cry, right? Because I know that those videos go viral because of the way that they evoke our emotions. And those emotional responses then, therefore, you know, persuade us in ways that we maybe aren't cognizant of. Um, so my best advice is to be super vigilant, um, but that's hard because, again, the platform and the technology are designed to prevent us from being super vigilant, right? They don't want us to think critically about it. Or it, it. takes time, like you said. It you does can take Google time. everything, you can look up everything. Yeah. So um, you also wrote that, um, I think you wrote this, that beware 
of anything that plays on your emotions or makes you feel guilty. But aren't those, couldn't those things be good? Like, you know, with what you said about saving for retirement, like we feel guilty and then we start saving, you know? Yeah. What, what, I, what I said, I think, was um, when you're receiving messages, uh, pay attention to your emotions. Pay attention to how you're thinking. And if all of a sudden you're changing, I wasn't feeling guilty, I wasn't feeling moral outrage th- three seconds ago. Ask yourself why. If you go into the sales, uh, you know, a sales situation, and somebody all of a sudden says, well, you know, you're not going to be able to buy that two days from now, and you start to feel panicking. Ooh, yeah. Ask yourself, <laughs> why am I, why all of a sudden am I feeling panicking here? <laughs> and because that could be a clue that somebody is trying to uh, use propaganda against you. And same with when you watch the news. If you're feeling anxious while you're watching the news, that news is designed to make you feel anxious. Yeah. <laughs> and making you feel anxious does them a big favor. It keeps you tuned into that news channel um, through the commercials, right? To find out what happens next, you come back. Um, you know, Cicero used to say, qui bono, which means who profits. So if you're starting to f- notice that you feel anxious, um, about things, or, or you feel like you're being manipulated, you probably are. Try to think about who's profiting from that. Who's, who's manipulating you for what reason? And also, I'll, ask one more thing, too. I mean, maybe uh, feeling guilty is the right emotion. Because things, you might have done something wrong. There might be, you know, <laughs> uh, somebody who is suffering that needs your help. Uh, so you want to take a step back and ask, why am I feeling that? Is it a legitimate emotion? or somebody playing on it rapidly one after another. Although I have to defend newspapers, uh, <laughs> because much of the news may be anxiety-producing, but it's, we believe, it's what's really happening, and you need to know that there are... I'm not thinking of newspapers. Oh. I'm thinking about cable news channels where the music is intense and you feel overwhelmed just listening to the music and the chirons are going and there's multiple windows and it's all designed to hook you in and keep you there and have you on the edge of your seats. I can't watch cable news. (laughs) Makes makes my heart race. Um, So... Is there a way that, um, you were saying like we don't join things anymore, we don't join clubs and stuff like that, but we do join Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and you know, Facebook, I know Facebook gets such a bad rap for mining our private information and for bombarding us with ads, but it's also this forum where people wish each other happy birthday and express sympathy when family members die, when pets die, um, and congratulate you when you graduate from something. So isn't that like a good community? I mean, can't that be good propaganda? <laughs> I think maybe it was. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess, I guess the, the, the relevant question is, is it still? Uh, and you know, I think we, we know so little about the way the algorithm, algorithms work in terms of what gets displayed and when and you know we we actually just tried to run a research study on Facebook where we displayed we thought we were running a well-controlled scientific experiment with multiple messages that would get displayed to three different groups and it turns out Facebook just took over and optimized the messages and they just said who's this one working for better and it turns out our one message worked really well for middle-aged women in the Midwest and we had no idea that that was going to be the case and that's not what we wanted to be the case and it but make, those are like ads, right? Or yes, those are ads, but the same algorithms are at work for the messages that you post and Jen posts and Anthony posts, even just the stories that we are reposting that mm-hmm. we had nothing to do with. Um, Facebook and other social media platforms, of course, know what is going to get the clicks and the views and the outrage, as Jen said earlier. And so... I think you know, part of this question is not only how can we change the way that we react to these things, exactly. but also, there's how many of us in the room? This is not enough to make an impact. We also need the social media platforms to figure out ways to change the algorithm so that people are more mindful consumers of the messages. 
So, so how do we uh, how do we do that? Well, so I, I'm not the one. <laughs> I don't have an answer. Um, but <laughs> so there, there's research right now. Do. There's research right now that's really looking into essentially how we can do this. Mm -hmm. um, Dave Rand and Gordon Pennycook from MIT have done some fascinating work showing essentially what is it that predicts when we reshare things and and mindlessly reshare things, um, mm -hmm. especially with regard to sort of political propaganda. Um, and and the, the one school of thought is that we, we are, we're motivated and we rationalize, oh, yeah, that sounds like it's really anti-Trump, but, but, you know, I'm a liberal progressive Democrat, so let me see how it's right. But it turns out it's not so much that we rationalize things, but the people who tend to reshare uh, and retweet and really consume more of the fake news are the ones who are doing so in an impulsive and not deliberative manner. Um, it turns out there's a easy way to measure if you're more impulsive or deliberative. There's this, it's a test called the cognitive reflection test. And it asks little questions, and every question has an answer that's more impulsive or more deliberative. So something like, you're running a race, and you pass the person who's in second place. What place are you in? The impulsive answer is, now you're in first place. But if you think about it, now you're in second place, actually, because you passed the person who's in second place. And people differ on this. And people who are more likely <laughs> to be impulsive great are more likely to share fake news and believe it. And so part of the solution is to get people to more accurately, to think about the messages that they're receiving more accurately. And so they've run really clever studies with Facebook, where you just put a message up that says, can you rate how accurate this article is? Just the act of doing that puts people into a more deliberative, reflective, and not impulsive mindset, regardless of their po political persuasion, regardless of their education, their income, all of those factors, now they're more likely to sort of critically consume the news or the stories that are being shared. And so th this, to me, is something that can affect millions, tens of millions of people uh, in, in a way that could actually change the discourse, I think. That's fascinating. Um, and it does make me, I am worried that because everything gets consumed in a bite-sized way that um, people will never give themselves a right. chance to try and to look at things more accurately. Right. Um, and, and also, I mean, I think you wrote, I keep saying I think you wrote, and then you're like, well, not really. But no. um, I think, I'm getting old, maybe I did. I think, <laughs> no, yeah. no. <laughs> maybe I did. I think you wrote that we should be skeptical of authority, right. which seems fine. Um, but at some point... It's one thing to be skeptical of a politician who yeah. wants to convince you of something. But what about the anti-vaxxers who are skeptical of science and scientists? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, I didn't mean it as uh, skeptical. Like the bumper, the bumper suggests this question of authority kind of always drives me nuts. Like, yeah. well, what, how do you do that? What, what is it about? Instead... Um, I see I'm, a lot of that in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't get a lot of that uh, in Texas. <laughs> yeah. uh, but instead, to start asking questions about the person's expertise. Yeah. So, for instance, the example you gave earlier about um, the 10,000 steps. Yeah. So I think I, that, that was great, got people walking, but it also just polluted the communication mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether this is real science or not. And that's what's driving the kinds of things with the vaxxers and, and other kinds of, of science denials. Um, they've gotten into a, a, a cluttered environment. And what, how do I know that uh, this is really from a doctor? What, 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 what is the, the, the authority here? Yeah. And so what I suggest doing is ask sets of questions. First of all, credi credibility, expertise can be faked. I, used to, I studied con criminals. That's their modus operandi. They call up, I'm with the FBI and pretend to be uh, law enforcement. So you have to ask, is this really a legitimate authority? Second, do they have a basis for making the statement? So um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm not, the, I'm an expert in certain areas, but I certainly couldn't say, you know, the person in the front row needs his gallbladder out, because that would be outside my expertise. <laughs> That's an obvious answer, but 
oftentimes we look on Facebook and other places, the person has no expertise. I mean, one of the persons who's writing parent guides uh, just plea dealed on the college gate uh, <laughs> issue. I mean, if she was that good at getting your, raising her kids, she should have been able to get, her, get them into college without cheating. <laughs> but <laughs> this is a, a proclaimed expert. Well, what was her area of expertise? Why was she able to tell you how to raise your kid? And so these are the kind of questions we need to ask um, to sort out what the, what the basis is. And it's difficult. I mean, one of, the, one of the issues that happens in science is a lot of uh, publicity science, a press release that gets out there. Uh, on Facebook, I, you know, I have atheist friends, I have religious friends, and they both post, priming religion shows that uh, you're a better person. I get that from the religious persons. Priming religion shows you're a worse person. I get the, all the atheists are reposting that. Well, both of those studies can't be right. Um, but it, both of them are publicity. And so that, that environment's becoming polluted, and we can't tell uh, what, what's up. And so, I, I, uh, by the way, I, I'll echo Hal, Hal's uh, suggestion of taking a step back and being deliberative and asking questions. Uh, that was one of the most, when I, I did some work on uh, fraud criminals. And what's the best way to, to, to prevent a, a, a fraud uh, from happening? And what we did was we had people who were on mooch list. The fraud criminals would call them routinely. And we would have about a five to ten minutes to try to tell them something on how to deal with it. The number one thing we learned was getting them to ask questions. So for a charity fraud, ask how much, of, what percentage goes to charity? For a financial mm. investment fraud, what's your FINRA investment, investor uh, ID number? Just having those questions reduce the fraud rate by 50%. We know because we then called them up about a week later and tried to take them in a, a fraud. Wow. Uh, <laughs> which is the only way you can find that stuff out. So asking that kind of question and taking a step back is, is very key. And, and I mean, those are all like good, that's good advice about everything. That, right. you know, when people Thanks. are trying to sell, <laughs> sell you something. Right. Um, we spend... Um, Oh, I want to ask you something about sure. how we propagandize each other. But first, uh, if you look at an, uh, an issue, I can't think of a more polarized issue today than um, the debate on abortion and abortion rights. Do you think there's propaganda on both sides of that debate? Sure. <laughs> Even on I the... Do. Yeah, I mean... Of course Absolutely. there is. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> There's propaganda on all sides of all questions. Okay. <laughs> just, just, it's just, propaganda all the way down. Just the label, pro-choice versus pro-life. Which right. I beginning, actually uh, uh, hate as a writer. I say yeah. you're pro-abortion rights or you're yeah. anti-abortion. Because once you decide the label, I mean, who's against choice, who's against life? Right. That's true. That's true. Can I just go back to the yeah. question about Facebook and how it's different from yeah, those community organizations that we used to join? Um, so if you guys have read uh, Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, this is his research about how we have for generations failed to join civic organizations that teach us democratic decision making um, and skills related to democracy um, and that it's a problem. And so all of the examples that you gave of people being supportive community mm -hmm. members, right, which is what you like about Facebook, think about how um, all of those things are about emotions, right? Oh, I feel better today because it's my birthday and people mm -hmm. remembered. Or, oh, you know, I, I get to help, um, you know, someone celebrate their marriage or their anniversary or, right? That's all about connecting through emotion. Right? Highly emotive content is rewarded by the algorithm because people respond to it. Right? So that, that stuff will always get put up high in your feed, um, always. Um, and then the second point about that is that the difference between that community that is supportive for you and, and for all of us, um, hopefully, uh, and what is actually productive for democracy 
um, is, is a very big difference. So um, Putnam wrote about the difference between bridging social capital and bonding social capital. Bonding social capital is the relationships that you have with your family members, your close friends, those people who are on your Facebook, mm -hmm. probably. Um, right, uh, those people that you know throughout your life and that you know it might be in your phone. Um, bridging social capital would be people who you just randomly meet, you know, people you would meet at the organization or waiting in line or um, in the book club, right? Those things that would divide, that would bridge um, socioeconomic divides and racial divides and right, all kinds of other things. It turns out that the bridging social capital is what makes democracy work. Right? Those, those connections that we make with people who are not like us, who are not already in our phone, <laughs> who are not on our Facebook, those are, that's how you get a job when you don't have a job and you need one. That's how um, you find someone, you know, maybe who, in his example, Putnam's example, will um, give you a kidney um, <laughs> for your transplant. Right? Um, it's, it's that bridging social capital that um, actually solidifies democracy, that makes us trust one another, right? So the trust that we have- It also makes us learn about each other. Yes, absolutely. In a way that- And it makes the world less scary, right? So we, we learn to trust one another, we learn that the world is not, not as scary as it seems on cable news, um, <laughs> and, and we, we create these, um, these thicker bonds throughout a community, instead of within our already developed social network. And that's the difference between Facebook and these um, community organizations like the Rotary Club or the PTA or whatever that we used to belong or to. Or book club. Or a book club. Book clubs are great. Yeah. Libraries are great. Go to your library. Or, There's so or, many great events. Or we should have summer camp for adults. Summer camp for adults would be good. Um, <laughs> is there, um, do you guys have, um, um, are there people in your lives personally that you have a hard time resisting their propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> you don't mean maritally, right? Like, I guess that could be. Uh, or maybe you know that person so well that you're married to that you never believe their propaganda. <laughs> I don't know. I was, just, I was just wondering if there's... Um, um, uh, I have a best friend, and she could tell me anything, and I'd be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, so... <laughs> Uh, in the reverse, so I'm a I'm a rhetorician. I persuade, you know. I study persuasion, um, and I'm married to a philosopher who's a logician, <laughs> and I I win no arguments with him, and he cannot be persuaded. So I might make a statement, um, and he will tell me what's wrong with it, and. Um, <laughs> But then later, like he'll self-persuade, so he'll think about it, and then later oh. he'll come to me and he'll say, you know what, I was thinking about what you said and you were right, but I can't persuade him in a moment. He has to decide for himself. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a while to figure that out, but once I figured it out, everything is great. <laughs> um, is, there, is there any way, it seems like a lot of our discourse, whether it's in person, among people we kind of know, or whether it's online, is, is very high-pitched, and people don't exchange <laughs> um, frank but um, uh, judicious comments. We're always pitching at each other. Is there any way to fix that? Hmm. No. <laughs> um, I, th I think there's a two-prong uh, two approach that kind of emerged from this discussion. I think the first thing we need to do is, uh, it's a new media, and we need a discussion about what our norms are, yeah. uh, what do we expect from that media, and you know, also, uh, do we want to regulate certain aspects of it? This is not a new question. If you go back, um, radio, Goebbels loved it. It was a new propaganda form. Lenny Riefenstahl loved the films. Mm -hmm. It was a new, new propaganda form. But eventually we learned how to handle it. Same thing with the old penny press in the late 19th century that got us into wars. So we have to ask those kind of questions, and they're tough questions. So do you want to censor speech? And how much do you want to censor yeah. speech? Right. So those are, those are questions that we should have as a community on Facebook and Twitter and the rest. The second approach is a personal approach. Uh, when I think about how to handle this, 
There are two uh, philosophers of democracy, Niccolo Machiavelli and Thomas Jefferson. Machiavelli wrote The Prince, and that was basically how to, how to, you know, to wield power. But in his later life, he, he started to say, well, how do I control this guy? How do I control this prince? And they both came up with a concept that I call democratic virtue. And that is the kinds of uh, things that we have to do as citizens of a democracy. And this is how we should be thinking about our Facebook. One is to approach things humbly, mm-hmm. not with arrogance, that I could be wrong. And so before I post, I should think that through. Another is to follow the facts. Another is to create an environment of tolerance and respect for other people. Um, and then a, a, a support for the social institutions of democracy, the rules that we go by. I think one of the most interesting questions uh, was Secretary Clinton, Secretary Hillary Clinton, asking people, what would happen if the Democratic candidate in 2020 said, China, if you're listening, you'll be rewarded from our media if you can get the tax returns for Donald Trump. (laughs) I thought it was really interesting because I... I, the last time I taught my course on autocracy and democracy, I used that same exact example. I don't know how she got my lecture notes. <laughs> but it's, a, it's in the emails. Yeah, yeah, I guess it was in the emails. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but if you're a Democrat, you should be asking yourself, should we be doing that? And if so, you should be okay with Trump doing it. If you're yeah. a Republican, you should be saying, well, I, if the Democrats do that, is that going to be hunky-dory? Is that going to be fine? Yeah. And if your answer is no, it shouldn't be hunky-dory when Donald Trump did it. And so that's a key question that each one of us should be asking right now. I personally think it would be wrong for the Democratic par- Party or any candidate to ask China to interfere with our elections. Of but yeah. that's one that each of us have to make. And I'd like to see us make that decision. <laughs> because if it's, if it's fine, well, maybe the Democrats will have to do that next time. And that's what it means by protecting the, the norms of our society, the norms of what it means to be a, in a democracy. And the final thing is, is to try to create deliberative persuasion. So on Facebook, and I have not had success at this, so you, you should try it, uh, is when somebody posts something, like uh, this happened on tariffs. Uh, I just asked a question. I just want to know the answer. Why are the tariffs being put on, not on raw materials as opposed to final goods? And I posted, and I said, I just want to know the answer. If you're supporting the tariffs, please tell me why. I don't want it, and you know, people attack Trump. I said, no, I don't want to hear that attack. I just wanted that answer. It's an important answer. Because if you put it on raw materials that are needed for Detroit in the automobile industry, you're practically bombing yourself in an economic trade war. I didn't get an answer. But I think it was important to do because those are the kind of questions you have to make, answer, in order to have deliberative persuasion. Healthcare, everybody wants healthcare, but there's a lot of trade-offs. So, Which one are you willing to make? Those are the kind of dis- discussions that are needed in a democracy. So you've given us all a lot of homework Sorry. Um, for us Sorry. to think about. Um, thank you so much. You guys have all been so interesting. And um, let me just give a round of applause for Hal, Jen, Anthony. I guess the ancient Greeks, the original liberal arts education, was part about teaching you to be a good citizen who can vote uh, and learning about rhetoric and learning about persuasive arguments. Do you think that uh, education, maybe in high school, for instance, could be part of uh, the solution to some of these problems? And and one of the differences um, between ancient Greece and today is that a citizen was an officer of the government in ancient Greece. right? And we don't think of ourselves as officers of the government. We don't think of ourselves as having an office. Right, as citizens of the United States. Um, and to me, that's a problem. Um, you know, I think that we act more as partisans than we do as citizens in this country. Um, we don't think of the common good. We think of what's good for our party. Uh, and that's, I think, a, a, a result of 
propaganda, and I think that that makes us communicate as propagandists. Um, and I bet you agree. <laughs> uh, oh, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, it was taught in the schools a long time ago, Institute for Propaganda Analysis, mm -hmm. in the 1930s. And that's where you might have heard phrases like glittering generalities mm -hmm. and uh, just plain folks, which was a, a demagogue technique used by Huey, Huey Long and Father Coughlin at the time uh, that these things were written. So it was taught. And um, yeah. I think it was, a, it was a, 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 an effective thing to do. Yeah, I would just add one thing to that, which is that, of course, I think we can all agree that there's need for more education around critical thinking but also more of the specifics with the tools for how to actually deal with propaganda in the modern world, right? And that, yeah. that I think, could be very useful at that stage, yeah. especially. You know, and also, I think it, it's helpful to teach people how to persuade. Yeah. Because if you don't know how to persuade, uh, how do you get anything done? And so they become alienated in a sense of hopelessness. So uh, learning how to persuade in a fair and honest manner is just as important as being able to uh, spot the, the propagandist lie. My name is Mike Sinkoff. Um, I want to ask about trolls. There are, there are a whole bunch of people out there who use social media in a way that seems very malicious and mean, and in, uh, their objective seems to be to make other people as angry as possible. And this seems to be... This is something I, uh, it seems new to me. Can you, can you talk about that? Well, some of those trolls are paid. And some of them come from overseas in Russia. And one of their objectives is to divide Americans. And how best to do that, uh, Mike, was it? Yes. Is exactly how you described it, Mike. I call it weaponized communication. Um, trolling, propaganda, conspiracy theory, there's a whole constellation of really bad um, communication practices that we have primarily online, but you know, in other places, and they have a long history. Um, and what I mean by weaponized communication is um, the use of communication as a kind of force. right? So rather than democratic persuasion, um, you're, you're seeking compliance. Right? And so um, the, the trolling behavior, any of these other behaviors, are all ways of trying to um, get people to acquiesce. I don't know how many of you have seen the TV series called Who's America? with Sasha uh, Cohen, Baron Cohen. And he, <laughs> he goes around in four different characters. But the one that really amazes me is he being an Israeli ex-militant and goes around and, and does, uses this propaganda in like just minutes turns these people like big adults doing these weird things. And I was just wondering, you know, there's one thing to look at some fake news and say you like it or send it to others or retweet some bad stuff. But like, how do you get some, uh, get people to do these ridiculous, outrageous acts in, in a matter of minutes by just, you know, using propaganda? I would say Sasha Baron Cohen is a He's a master at doing this sort of thing, and there's a lot of behind the scenes that get people to do what seems like just minutes of ridiculous acts from that, and there's a lot of setup That's there. And I think that actually is more of the lesson, which is that it's not just that there's people responding in quick ways, but there's a buildup over time, and we respond to messages over time, and eventually, something there's a tipping point there, right? And so I think that that's more the lesson from Sasha Baron Cohen, and you know. There's other things there that it's, it's humorous in that particular context, but that's not always the case, right? Although I, yeah, I agree with that. I'd also point out that um, there is a power of a situation. Yeah. And once you create a situation that defines reality, uh, it has social pressures, social consensus, peer pressure, authority, you can get people to do um, crazy things. Yeah. Uh, just remember the old TV show, Candid Camera. Mm. And one of the clips yeah. that I always enjoyed, this was way before 9-11, but uh, they had a guy take off from Phoenix, and he was handed some oranges by Miss Sunshine, Arizona. And then he landed in Denver, but they made the Denver airport look exactly like the Phoenix airport. <laughs> and they had a twin give the guy oranges. Uh, he thought he was in Phoenix <laughs> because of the power of that situation. You ever gone to Disneyland and you get swept up in the Pirates of the Caribbean? 
you know, your yo-ho-ho, it's a pirate's life for me. <laughs> That's the power of that situation. <laughs> and what makes it look crazy, think about it. Suppose you, you saw somebody going down that boat going, yo-ho-ho, it's a pirate's life for me, and you didn't see any of the rides. You say, that person's nuts. <laughs> and that can be the power of that situation. Um, I'm Lillian Simons. I was wondering if propaganda could be associated with group thinking and how that would be um, harmful and how to like not um, right. like like <laughs> you know, talking about Don't fall for it. Yeah. This most simplistic view of rhetoric and the one that I start my class with, I actually label groupthink. Um, and it has two two authors in it. One is Edward Bernays, the founder of propaganda and public relations. And the other is Gorgias um, in his Encomium of Helen, which is about the power of rhetoric um, to make people do just what you want. Um, so to answer your question in the affirmative, yes. <laughs> um, it, it is absolutely um, a way of understanding it and, and definitely the goal, right? The instrumental goal. Horkheimer and Adorno in the Dialectic of Enlightenment um, talk about propaganda as um, using people as a lever, um, as like a machine, right? That it, it uses people, it abuses them, it takes, denies their free will to try to force them um, to think all the same so that you can control them. Um, and that's certainly the problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I look at it in a similar vein. One of the most uh, powerful influence tactics that, uh, that I talk about in, 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 in Elliot and I talk about in our book is called Grand Falooning, which for those of you who know the con, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, it's a meaningless group that takes on a significant meaning. Uh, uh, it, the social psychology term is social identity. Once you get into a group with a social identity, that's a very powerful way of determining your thinking. Because I'm an X, and this is what X believes. Uh, and if I, I want to be a really good X, so I want to do even more of that. I don't want to be kicked out of the group, so I'll comply even more. And it becomes a very powerful tool for knowing what to say and putting pressure, and what to say and think, and putting pressure on you to, to continue in that line. Uh, my name is Ryan Takatomo, and my question is, is it more the... Um, the med- problems in media, is it more of a symptom of postmodernist culture, or is it the media that's projecting a postmodern culture onto the rest of us? If you're thinking of the society of the spectacle, or if you're thinking of Baudrillard, um, you know, any of those versions of postmodernism um, as a theory, then uh, yeah, I mean, right, like postmodern critiques of popular culture um, emerged with the proliferation, saturation of media. Um, but I think what we have today is, is, is different, right? It's whatever is after postmodernism in terms of the media and the way that the spectacle works. Um, because you know, when I used to teach Debord to my students, I used to tell them that their phone was their spectacular device, right? <laughs> that it connected them to the spectacle. Um, and they started calling it their spectacular device. It was good propaganda <laughs> on my... Um, but uh, but but it is that right but but now what we know is that that phone controls us like it's not that we are connecting to the spectacle through the phone it's that the phone is controlling us in a way that um, I don't think we thought about before now and I would just add to that I think it's it's impossible to sort of disentangle these two things it's it's not that one causes the other but there's of course a cycle here, right? And the it's reciprocal. Right. The media is responding to us and we're responding to the media and it continues on and on. Hi, I'm Elijah Conaway. I um I heard you guys touch on how to uh, I think teach high schoolers um about propaganda. I was just wondering as a high schooler myself, how would you defend children from being taken advantage of by propaganda? I feel like that's a really great question and a really difficult one to answer. But of course, I think one way that we have to start thinking about this is figuring out where the filters are. And so how does information get to children to begin with? Um, and what, of course, you know, what can parents, I'm thinking of who, who in children's lives are the ones who control that information? What can parents do to monitor it, to figure out what children are hearing? 
and to essentially control it, for lack of a better word, right? And so th this, this, to me, is where, where we start making an impact there. You can't say, how can we control the information source? Because that, that ship has sailed. Um, <laughs> but you can start to think about where the information comes from and also what your behaviors as an adult do in front of kids, right? Even the simple thing of, yeah. we put on NPR in the morning, and I stopped doing that as my daughter started asking questions <laughs> surrounding the things that she was hearing there. I didn't realize she was listening too, but of course that's one thing. Well, at least it's NPR. Uh, that's fair, okay. <laughs> I, mean. I, I, I would suggest um, <laughs> watching TV and the media with your kids. Yeah, yeah. And helping them understand what's happening. So in, one of the best ways to prevent persuasion is to inoculate the right. person. Give them a small dose of the, the, the propaganda tactic and then the tools for refuting it. So how would you do this with a kid? Well, when my son was younger, uh, we watched uh, one of these TV, sh uh, one of these commercials where the cars do all the cool spinning and stuff. And he said, wow, that's really cool. And I said, man, you're right, that is really cool. Let's go to the toy store right now and see if it does it. <laughs> if it does it, I'll buy it for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. he, didn't get, he didn't want the toy <laughs> let's put it that way and he's uh, got a healthy skepticism that, uh, that uh, I'm proud of well on that note <laughs> before we close I'd like to thank the UCLA Anderson School of Management our co-presenter tonight for bringing us all together for this fantastic program also thank all of you for joining us please stick around for drinks afterwards just outside in the lobby to continue the conversation thank you to C-SPAN for uh, recording tonight's program for later broadcast and finally a big round of applause for our speakers tonight thank you so much